This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Do we have a peg on fake news or we're just talking fake news? Well, it's like classic weeds. Yeah, that's fine. I just wanted to... I can do town halls. Awesome. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Matthew Iglesias, joined by my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Good morning. Hi. Hello. to be here. Hello. We're going to talk about the town halls that are happening or not happening uh, all across America this week. Going to talk about a white paper that, uh, it made me angry. Um, <laughs> made you feel some things. He was like, this is kind of like if, you know, if populism was a... NBER research paper. I think it, it would be this paper. Uh, but before that, I kind of wanted a little bit off the particulars of the news cycle to talk about fake news. I was inspired by over the. I week- don't believe you. You don't believe me that fake I was inspired. Podcast. Yeah, this is fake. This is a fake topic. Yeah, I can't prove it, but. I spoke to some people over the weekend, and they were very concerned, as I think a lot of left of center people have become, that. All this fake news out there is the reason that election outcomes that they don't approve of has occurred um, and that it's like a like a really big problem and that it needs a solution that we as a society are like failing to produce a civically educated uh, group of people who are knowledgeable and correctly informed and therefore who will vote for good candidates who who do good things. And as a as a media person, I think it is definitely true that the way social sharing works on the internet has meant that sort of deliberately fake news stories are like a thing you can do now in a way that was very marginal in in the past. Um, But at the same time, I think it is truly and profoundly wrong to think that when good things happened in American politics, that was because of a super well-informed, super engaged, civically-minded citizenry, and that it is also bad, uh, wrong to think that when when things you don't approve of happen, it's because of these, these fake stories that I think... When you look at the like paradigmatic sort of like fake news stories, and if you think about it for a little bit, you like you can see this, right? Like the most popular fake news story of the 2016 campaign was one that said that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump. And now you have to ask yourself, like, did that really move people's votes? You're imagining a devout Catholic who wasn't so sure about Donald Trump. Then they read this story from a dodgy website that was like, oh, the Pope endorsed Trump. And so their next step is not to like check and see if that's true, see what other bishops have been saying about Donald Trump, uh, ask their priest about this, uh, to even wonder, isn't it unusual for the Pope to do an endorsement in a presidential campaign? But instead, no, they're just like blindly, well, I saw it on Facebook, so now I love Donald Trump, right? And that's ridiculous. Like nobody does that. The reason a story like that gets shared is that a lot of white Catholics liked Donald Trump. And so when they saw a story that just sort of was pleasing to their Donald Trump support, they're inclined to go share. And the other way around. That story specifically got hate shared a lot. It got shared by a lot of liberals who don't like Donald Trump who were either – some people shared it because it was fake. Like this is a fake news story. Stop sharing it was one thing that was happening. Uh, And then – but another thing that happened with a lot of the sharing around that particular story was people 
pissed at the pope saying, look, all these religious people are hypocrites. There's a lot of these stories that when, when you see them go super viral, they're, they're not always going viral among the people the story is meant to reach. They're sometimes going viral uh, around the opposite group, the people who are most angered by the story. Right. And if you look at a story that uh, was not fake news but I think was like wrong, um, Slate before before the election had this uh, uh, like Alpha Bank uh, story, right, that like right. Donald Trump had a secret server and, you know, that got shared around a lot by Hillary Clinton fans who were like, aha, we're going to, you know, break. break. Donald Trump had a secret server that was connected to a secret server in Russia. Right. That, that just Yeah. And it was story. And that, that story was shared a lot by people who were criticizing it. It was shared a lot by people who already believed that Donald Trump had a lot of nefarious connections to Russia. I think of all the different like motivations that people share stories like this. They were previously undecided but changed their mind about the election because this story was so compelling and then they had to go share it with their friends who were also undecided is like far and away the least plausible reason that anybody would share a like incendiary story about politics. Whether whether it's like fake or real or or any kind of like hot take on an opinion page or like anything at all. Like that's just – that's not how people work. It's not how media consumption works. Although I, I want to give more credit like as we get into this to the fake news worriers than I think you're giving them. Like I think you're right that like it's not like you see one story like holy shit like the Pope endorsed Donald Trump or like Donald Trump is a secret bank and then all of a sudden you like flip from like – supporting Clinton to supporting Trump and are like off your couch, like getting ready to vote. You know, I don't think it's like I agree. Like that's like a very silly theory of how this works. It does seem like more plausible to me that that the kind of like larger effect of seeing lots and lots of this like repeated over and over again, like living in this universe. I think like, the Wall Street Journal had a really great interactive piece this um, year. I think it was called like Red Feed, Blue Feed, looking at like what your Facebook feed looks like if you're someone who tends to be liberal or tends to be democratic. And it seems actually like quite plausible to me that there is a possibility of living in that sphere of that affecting kind of how you think about the candidates. And, and like on the on the margins affecting like who decides to go vote or not. I, I think you're right. Like, I don't think it's like flipping people from Clinton to Trump or Trump to Clinton in any way. But when I think about turnout, like people getting like excited and energized to vote, like that's I think that's like a more generous and fair reading of like the argument of, of why this might matter, that that it could be seeing it in aggregate, seeing it all the time. It could be enough to to get some people to decide to vote, to decide to be more active in a way they wouldn't have been if we were like absent fake news. Let me try to cut this in a different direction. And, and it speaks to that great Wall Street Journal red Facebook feed versus blue Facebook feed feature. I think people, when they consider what are the sorts of polarization that matter in media diets, they tend to think of the red, blue, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat polarization. And they sort of imagine if you're a political junkie and if you were listening to this show, you are a political junkie. They extrapolate out from themselves and their Facebook feed is full of politics. So they assume everybody's Facebook feed is full of politics. And so as you say, like people are seeing tons of this stuff and the aggregate is very intense. The most important, I think, polarization around news consumption in politics is not red versus blue. It's interested versus uninterested. We are weird. We are weirdos. We are strange human beings who even 
at times when politics is not that interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people are super engaged with politics right now, but we are super engaged with it during, you know, two years ago. And it was just like whatever Paul Ryan and Barack Obama were doing two years ago. And most people just aren't like that. And so and, and so their Facebook feeds, Mark Zuckerberg had the 6,000 word Facebook manifesto out over the weekend, which is actually pretty interesting and, and spoke to the fake news stuff in ways maybe we want to get into. But he did make this point that the overwhelming majority of what people are seeing in their Facebook feeds is non-political. Like if you just look at a normal Facebook feed, it's pictures of kids. It's your friends posting weird stuff. I mean there's some stuff from your friends that are political, but but it's mostly not. And so the people seeing the most political stuff are the people whose minds are the most made up. The reason they are political junkies is because they are in very invested in whether Team Red or Team Blue wins. Maybe they're very invested for reasons of substance. There's a policy they really care about. They're, they're staunchly pro-life or they really care about health care for all. Maybe it's just because they have a, a sports team's like allegiance to it. Their dad was a Democrat and their dad's dad was a Democrat and their dad's dad's dad was a Democrat. But – they're not going to be persuaded by anything basically. And this is one of the reasons I think that a lot of our models of how people absorb information in politics don't work. I always think about this around presidential speeches. There, It is the most common trope in journalism, in punditry, in cable news talk that it, whenever somebody wants something to happen, it's just like, why doesn't the president give a speech? Why doesn't the president come out and say the thing that I've written in my head that I would say if I were president today? And the answer of one is usually the president has said that or some version of that that professional speechwriters thought would be better. But then when you look at presidential speeches and their ratings and who listens, their ratings are not that high for most of them. Um, very, very low. In fact, they most of them don't even get covered live by even cable news, much less network news. And the people who do tune in are extremely polarized in what they already believe. Even something like State of the Union, which is sort of the big speech event of the year. Most people who tune into that tune in because they're interested in politics. Um, there are some folks who tune in for a civic duty reason. That, that That's a rare one that maybe breaks through a little bit. But even there, most people who tune in already have their minds made up. So just one reason I think it's very hard for fake news or real news or any kind of news to change anybody's mind is that – the people absorbing it, it's not even whether they're red or blue. It's they're already into politics. And because they're already into politics, they already have pretty strongly held opinions. Just I would ask everybody listening to this podcast right now to just really ask themselves, when is the last time they read something and it truly changed their opinion? Not about a small thing about politics, but a big thing. Like change their opinion about which party they should vote for in the election or change their part their opinion about whether a major public policy is good or bad. I'm not saying you can't ever find examples of it and, and I, I look forward to the, the emails about it. But I think people will find it's rarer than, than they think. It's a, dis a depressing thing for me because I feel like I'm always writing things I hope will be persuasive. But I know on some level I'm persuading nobody of nothing. <laughs> But I think on the flip side of that, like to go back to the point I was making earlier, like if we were to ask our listeners, when was the last time like something got you more active and more involved and like decided to go to a town hall or donate to something like that seems like like a plausible mechanism that this stuff matters. Like I bet there's a lot of people listening to this who will say like three weeks ago when there was this Muslim travel ban. I think like that still strikes me as like the plausible mechanism that we're talking about an intensity effect, like a desire, like getting people actually organized around or against people, not changing their minds. But that seems like the kind of mechanism that's more plausible to me, the idea that like it could get people more active and involved, whether that's voting or donating on either side. So I, I agree that that 
is a way that media does things. But I, I mean, I I did start this by talking about specifically about fake news, right? Which which I do think is an important distinction. Like social media filtering works even if 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 Mark Zuckerberg had a magic device that made it impossible for any story that had any inaccuracies in it to be shared on Facebook, that would revolutionize the media industry because it would kill off all fake news sites. It would get us all hiring fact checkers. Things would have to slow down a lot. I don't believe that that would at all change politics because the people who are in red or blue heavily politicized filter bubbles would still be in it. It is entirely possible. I could have written every day two stories a day that were completely true and reflected poorly on Hillary Clinton. And like, I, I liked Hillary Clinton. You, you know, I just like, I didn't do that because like that's not like my job to do hits on her. It wouldn't have like worked with the Vox audience. I don't think it would have been informative. But it's like the, the reason filtering is weird and the reason editorial decision making matters a lot is that like, the total universe of accurate assertions about an individual is like nearly infinite, right? And so I think something in the campaign that mattered a lot was that the FBI inquiry into the question of whether or not there was inadvertently discussion of classified material on an email server that Hillary Clinton had set up in a private residence. This blah, 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 blah story was like treated as a really big deal, whereas like is Donald Trump being bribed by the Russian government was treated as like, eh, who cares um, <laughs> kind of thing. And since the election, that has flipped a lot. You don't see much coverage of this now obscure email classified information handling type controversy. And there's a lot of concern about Donald Trump's shady ties to Russia. Um, that matters a lot, but that had nothing to do with like inaccuracies in 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 stories. And I think that the I think that where people get hung up on the fakeness that I think is wrong is in the belief that politics is like built up out of facts or possibly wrong facts, and that information and misinformation are like constructing people's people's worldviews. And something that I find very enlightening on this subject actually is if you just look at historical information about Americans' educational attainment. And so if you look at like the 1940 census, uh, the average American had an eighth grade education uh, at, at that point in time. Um, and this was a time that I think most liberals, I think most of the people I met over the weekend who were worried about fake news were like really excited about New Deal type politics, right? And you're talking about a country that was, you know, barely literate, right? People were not embracing New Deal policies because they were sitting around with like deep understanding of financial regulation and welfare state design in a way that has been lost in our like debased cable news era. It is almost certainly the case that today's much, much, much better educated American population immersed in digital technology like knows more stuff about what's happening in politics. Um, but like the situation is just different in a bajillion different ways. And when you think about what like drives people in politics, it's it's identity type issues and it's it's feelings, you know, like those airport protests, right? Something Donald Trump did that was incidental to the substance of the rulings was that they applied immediately. So there were people like on airplanes in immediate jeopardy and it felt to people like you could show up 
and like help them like instantly. Right. And that had a lot of, I think, like motivating force in like an understandable way. Like you have to go do this now. People are in detention now. And a more prudent policy that I think they're eventually going to land on, which is just like there's going to be some rule enforced by consular officers in faraway countries that you don't know anything about, you know, is much more demobilizing. But that kind of thing is like it's it's not about facts. And, and politics just never has been. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel-y things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. So I've been reading a book recently that – and I want to say I sort of agree with everything everybody has said. I agree on on the plausible mechanism of effect being how much you mobilize people. And I, I agree that politics isn't based on facts. And I do – I want to stop on, on that point for a minute. I just read a book called Democracy for Realists, which is by Chris Akins and Larry Bartels, who are, who are two great political scientists. And this book is a real thoroughgoing attack on everything you have ever believed about democracy. I mean, this is like a depressing book. Matt Iglesias wrote a great review. He did. That's right. Apparently explains the 2016 election. Right. And I've been enjoying reading this book because I – like it turns out there are whole swaths of this book that are great even aside from the great parts that Matt focused on in the 2016 election. What's your review of it called, Matt? Uh, it's called the book you should read to understand the 2016 election. Oh, so you can you can Google that or something. You can Google that or something to find it. It, it was it was it was more of a more of a, a social headline than, than <laughs> SEO. Anyway, the first third of the book is making the case that based on mountains of empirical research, there is no plausible case of the way democracies work. Is people know what is going on and vote based on accurate facts about it. The next third is making the case that. This sort of hack the political scientists created, the conceptual hack to make the argument that democracy still works despite the fact that people don't have very much good information about it, is that they do retrospective voting. They have these shortcuts where it's like, is the economy doing well? Are we in a foreign war where people are dying? And they basically show that even when you pull together the evidence on that, of which there is some, it doesn't amount to anything you'd be particularly comfortable with. It basically says people are going to look at the economy in the six months right before the election. And even most people don't do that. So, OK, that doesn't quite work either. And so then they're kind of asking, what explains the behavior of most people in a democracy? And the answer they come to is it is about various kinds of social identities that get activated. And, and it's, it, I think it's worth actually thinking about this. It's weird 
it, it, we are so used to it that we don't notice how weird it is, but it is weird that we spend a lot of time talking about groups like non-college educated whites and working class Hispanics and single women and Catholic white voters and so on. Why are those useful terms for talking about the voting behavior of that many people? What really does connect the interests of um, single mothers, for instance? I mean, obviously, there are some things, but I've met a lot of single mothers. They are more different than they are similar. Um, same thing with people in the in the white working class. And but the answer, you know, from from Bartels and Aikens, is that there really is a lot of evidence that people have extremely strong identities. Republican and Democrat, Catholic and Jewish, um, rural and and urban, southern and northern, and so on and so forth. And that basically what elections are is they are priming mechanisms. And and this goes to the point of facts because what they would say – and this goes to to the issue of fake news too, I think, is in our head the way this works is somebody sees something like the story about the pope and what it does, the effect it could have – is they'd say, oh, the pope endorsed Donald Trump. The pope is great. I'm going to trust the pope and go vote for Donald Trump. Whereas what would actually be sort of happening there, I think they would say, is that that story isn't going to change people's minds. If you don't like Donald Trump, you'd be like, the pope is completely wrong on this one, just like he's wrong on so many other things. Or if you love Donald Trump, it'll make you feel better about Donald Trump. But what it will more than that do is it will activate a question like, are you Catholic? Like, are you a Catholic voter? Like, do, are you activating your Catholic identity in this election? And that all elections are are collisions of different identities. And so, like, for instance, the Trump-Clinton election activated a lot of identities around multiculturalism. Are you comfortable with a rising multicultural majority in U.S. politics? Are you comfortable with more immigrants coming in over the border? Are you comfortable with Black Lives Matter? Are you comfortable – do you want – the American power structure to be dominated by sort of more traditionalist white voters from suburban and rural areas as it has been for a very long time. And that that priming is really important and that the, one of the major effects that news stories do, more than they convince people of stuff, uh, this is where – this goes back to the Zuckerberg thing where he notes in the memo correctly that showing people information contrary to their biases does not tend to convince them of anything. In fact, it has often a backlash effect where it makes their initial – uh, perception stronger. But what it does do is depending on how the bulk of that, to Sarah's point, how the bulk of those stories structure the questions, different elections activate different identities. So Mitt Romney versus Barack Obama activated identities of like capital versus labor. Are you a worker or are you a manager? Are you somebody who feels like you're winning in the economy or not? Are you somebody who feels good about business or do you feel bad about business? Whereas Trump and Clinton, despite – I mean obviously they activated Democrat and Republican identities as Obama and Romney did. But they also activated these other identities in a much more explicit way around are you comfortable with America becoming a majority minority political nation or are you not comfortable with that? And that just what the bulk of the stories are saying to your identity, so which identity you end up feeling when you walk into that booth is really, really important and is separate from their factual content. There was one when I was um, kind of thinking through like what influences elections. There was one amazing example I read about in Matt's piece this morning about sharks in New Jersey that just like was a really interesting reminder. I should of, like, say, yes, that research has come under some oh, no. questions. Oh, gosh. OK, so I was about to set up because I thought this was just like a really like taking in taking into account like everything you're saying. This was like a good reminder, but maybe it's a total garbage reminder. Matt will tell us in a second. 
of even with all these like identities being activated and kind of people choosing their political tribes, at the end of the day, there can also be like a lot of things like I don't think we like to think of we don't think of them as fake news, but things we like try and say like, well, that shouldn't influence the election, like how the football games go before the election. Like we don't want people voting on that. And it's not like fake news in the sense of like people are lying and making up facts, but these things that are doing this priming effect in a way that we like to think, well, people are smarter than that. But this shark's example is a really stark one. That yeah, maybe, so let me explain the, like, sharks and, the sharks, and there's some questions. About, so the, Walk us through the sharks <laughs> is one of the better weeds lines. All right. Basically, <laughs> Woodrow Wilson was governor of New Jersey. Then he was elected president in 1912. Um, he was reelected in 1916. And the 1912 election was super odd. Um, but Wilson ran stronger almost everywhere. In 1916, then he ran in 1912. Uh, one exception to that rule was his home state of New Jersey, where he ran weaker. And uh, the, the authors uh, speculate that this is because soon before the 1916 election, there was this crazy wave of shark attacks in coastal New Jersey that dominated the news, in part because they were spectacular, like a shark swam up a river and like killed a boy who was – he wasn't even in the ocean, you know. So, like, like the, the <laughs> kind, up. like the kind of thing that would really make you worried, right? Like, you're doing that sounds like fake news. You're, you're doing something where it would not possibly have occurred to you to worry about <laughs> sharks before, and suddenly kids are dying because of sharks. And it wasn't just a terrifying story, but it crushed the economic fortunes of the Jersey Coast beach towns uh, because because nobody wanted to go. So they show through some instruments that uh, the decline in propensity to vote for Wilson was concentrated in these Jersey Shore beach towns that were most directly impacted uh, by the shark attacks. And, you know, the argument that they're making that I think is not that wild, the, the shark story is wild. But if you think about the Democrats who I know on Capitol Hill all believe that the Ebola story hurt them in the 2014 midterms. Can um, I give an example I think is just yeah. also useful here? Because the evidence on it is solid. Yeah. Whereas the shark stuff has come on the track. Drought. Yeah. There is just reams of evidence that drought hurts incumbent politicians. And as Bartels and Aiken say in the book, like even if you think that what voters are punishing is some politicians are bad at handling drought – then in half the cases, they would do better because like some would be better than average at handling drought. But just drought hurts everybody. Right. And it's not the politician's fault. Like it's not like they didn't do a good enough rain dance. The also show a, a very clear one is that if you are a politician in a state that exports a lot of natural resources, um, that having the price of the commodity you produce go up is really good for your reelection chances, right? So like the oil boom in North Dakota made North Dakota politicians really, really popular, even though nobody – and the point of all of this is that like nobody actually thinks that like the president of the United States causes shark attacks or that the governor of North Dakota controls global commodity prices, right? Like anybody who – I think it's um, uh, Robin Hanson has this idea of like close and far and like your like political analytic mode tends to be a little bit weird in which people like want to see things come out a certain way. If you put it in a totally different case, you just ask someone making 
financial planning decisions about their own life, right? Do you think that whether or not Woodrow Wilson is reelected should impact whether we invest in a uh, beach hotel in New Jersey? Like nobody thinks that, right? Nobody actually thinks that the president is in charge of shark attacks. Nobody actually thinks that the governor of North Dakota controls the worldwide price of oil. But still in a practical sense, when good things are happening, people tend to take a good view of the incumbents. And when bad things are happening, they take a bad view. And that's the point about droughts. You should be saying something like, well, are politicians handling this crisis well? But instead, it's just like, oh, no, something bad is happening. But I think that actually like loops back to the fake news stuff in um, a kind of interesting way where I think like one of the ways fake news can work in all of this is like by by creating the idea that the world is like a very bad, scary place or a good place. And I think a lot of like the fake news around Hillary Clinton kind of like built up this idea that like a lot of like really bad things are happening, like bad, scary things that you should be upset about. I think like one of the Kind of another one that went pretty viral was this idea that um, Clinton's staff were running some sort of a child sex ring out of a local D.C. um, pizza parlor, Comet Pizza, um, on Connecticut Avenue, just a few miles from where we are taping this radio show. And, you know, if you're reading that through the lens of, like, what is happening in America right now, are things going good or bad, like— that kind of feels like a, like a shark attack, right? Like it feels like a weird, scary thing that you don't want happening. And, um, you know, it, it felt real enough to some people that you had a gunman show up at the pizza parlor and um, he didn't shoot anyone, but he said he was there to investigate, you know, this supposed child sex ring, which I should state clearly, I think the listeners of this podcast know this, there's absolutely no evidence that any of this was happening. It was 100% fake news. Um, I've eaten there recently. There were no signs of anything terrible happening. But, I mean, that's even, you know, putting elections aside, you know, one thing, and this is not like a shocking observation, but like that is seems like a strong reason to be worried about fake news, that even if it's not changing people's political motivations, it's encouraging someone to show up to this pizza place. It is um, seems like a general negative to the discourse that we're happening. And, you know, one thing I'm curious about, this feels like the first election where we really had this big fake news debate, like. What does it look like in the 2018 midterms? Like, what does it look like in 2020? Like, where, how does this unfold in um, future elections? It's it's a little hard for me to game out right now, like, what the next version of this debate looks like. I'll, I'll say something I think is, so one, I think the point you make there is really important. Even if this stuff didn't flip the election, it, among other things, sent a gunman to a pizza parlor. Like, it's bad. Like, this stuff is bad. And the people who do it should feel bad. The whole thing is just bad. <laughs> but um, we are to, – to your point about 2018, 2020, I think is really interesting because we're having this conversation a little bit like it's November 15th. And what has happened since the election is that Donald Trump has adopted fake news as a line that he continuously applies to real news. And, and fake news, like fake stories are bad. But I think in the end, the fake stories will do a lot less damage than the arising of this concept, which is now being thrown by anybody who wants to delegitimize any kind of information. And in fact, I mean, the president of the United States of America is constantly tweeting. I think we've become a little bit inured to how weird this is, is continuously tweeting that the New York Times and the Washington Post and NBC and CNN are fake news. And he doesn't even quite believe that. He talks to those places. He reads them. He watches them. 
But we are entering a space of just total metaphysical and informational confusion. Well, I don't know if this happens to you yeah. guys, but one of the things I've noticed in my inbox is before the election, this would never happen. But now I get two or three emails a week saying, like, well, you're fake news. Your story is fake news. And that, like, never – I got people, like, telling me I was garbage and they didn't like yeah. my coverage. <laughs> but it also seems to, like, be changing the way people are interacting with news sources they don't like and kind of giving people permission to say, well, that's just not true in, in a way, like, I – didn't get before the election. And this See, me- I kind of like it better. It was before <laughs> before the election, what would happen is whenever I would do a story that somebody didn't like, they would write in to complain that I was biased. Yeah. Quote unquote. Which <laughs> or I that always, it was clickbait. Which I always thought didn't even make sense. Like, even if it was by like, who cares? Right. Now they're at least saying, no, my objection to this story is that I believe it isn't true, which is like that is a good objection to a story. <laughs> it's a bad objection when it is true. No, like, I'm, I'm with Sarah on I'm, this I'm one. Saying, I'm saying though, like conceptually, right? No. This story is fake is a good reason but to reject I, it. I think, a bad, I, I think a bad thing about this and, and I don't know how much it matters. But I don't think a lot of these people think these stories are fake. I don't think Donald Trump is using this actually to mean things that are fake. But there are oftentimes the people who push these kinds of memes and these politicized arguments and then the people who believe them. And it goes to the thing about Comet Pizza. There are these cynical websites that put up, you know, some clearly wrong email that, you know, misinterpreted it, but are just like kind of trying to get some clicks. Then there's a guy who really, really thinks maybe he needs to go with a gun to save a bunch of kids who are being sexually trafficked at a pizza joint. And this fake news stuff, um, I think one of the really scary parts of this era is the president's informational habits. His way of dealing with information he doesn't like, his way of dealing with information he does like, his tendency to believe conspiracy theories, his preference, his his tendency to listen or read Infowars, his grabs just stuff he sees randomly on cable news and without checking it, tweets it out. And this whole thing where he's, you know, he's accusing people of being fake news. Now he's telling other people that any news you don't like is probably just fake. I just think it's bad. I'm not sure it's worse. Than, again, like I don't know how to test if it is worse than things have been at other times. I think other times people just like quietly didn't like things or they like wrote in and told you you were garbage <laughs> like quaintly. But this seems – it seems bad to me. You know what isn't fake news? The town halls. Oh, those are real news. Those that's are real where, news. That's where the paid protesters go, right? <laughs> Yeah, so we right now are kind of in this moment. Um, legislators are on recess right now. They're expected to come back next week to some kind of Obamacare replacement plan. Speaker Ryan has kept saying that very early March is when they plan to release um, kind of their plan to replace Obamacare. And so what you're seeing really happen across the country this week is kind of a surprising um, political moment when you have Republicans in charge. They have been promising Obamacare repeal for seven Years now, and you're just seeing this um, massive outcry at town halls. And you're seeing kind of two two versions of this. One is just a lot of people turning up to town halls when people are um, back home in their districts. I think one of the most interesting examples has been Chuck Grassley in Iowa. Eight years ago, he had to go to all these town halls where people were yelling at him, don't pass Obamacare. There are death panels in Obamacare. It was right around the town halls that Grassley flipped from supporting the individual mandate to opposing the individual mandate, that they really had an influence on his relationship with the health care law. Flash forward eight years from now, 
Um, Grassley goes back home and he is now getting yelled at, don't repeal the Affordable Care Act. There's one guy who told him um, ACA repeal is a giant death panel. So basically, you know, death panel if you do, death panel if you don't at this point. Um, and you so, have to write a story with the headline, death panel if think, you do, death panel if you don't. But that's that's today in Obamacare now. So that's great. Um, I do think, honestly, so, that yes. people are going to continue to die in the United States <laughs> under either policy. That's um, an unpopular policy position, Matt. So, so, you have one, so you have people really turning up, and it hasn't let up. You have people turning up who like the Affordable Care Act. The people who hate Obamacare um, are really not showing up in a prominent way. I'm sure there's some of them who are there, but um, they're not really the presence that the pro-ACA people are. And then the other thing, you know, you have happening is legislators not holding town halls. So, um, for example, Cory Gardner in Colorado, um, Susan Collins in Maine, they've really been dogged by liberal groups. Um, I believe a group in uh, Maryland, they held like a town hall with an absent seat for Representative Andy Harris, who's one of the few Republicans around here, um, saying, you know, this seat reserved for Andy Harris, and he's obviously not there. And I think, you know, one of the things you see happen, it's happening an interesting moment for Republicans. They're going to come back to D.C. next week. They're going to have to start talking about their replacement plan. And I think they look back at the protests of eight years ago, and at the time, they thought those mattered. They thought those were bad for Democrats. They thought that was some of the reason you saw a lot of a lot of kind of moderate Democrats lose their seats in um, 2010 was because of all this heat and outrage around the ACA. And I think they're starting to have to decide, like, do we how much can we do to shut this down? Like, does not holding town halls work? And, you know, do we support this thing that is clearly riling up the liberal base? Like are Republicans in 20. 18 at the risk of being the Democrats of 2010. I think these are this week is really shaping how legislators come back to D.C. next week and what they're thinking about. So I have a question for you about this. One of the big differences between this and the 2009 town halls is that the 2009 town halls came in the context of a pretty well-shaped set of bills. Mm -hmm. Right. So the House had the bill, had a bill that pretty much looked like what Obamacare looked like, the Senate Finance Committee bill. There had already been a lot of convergence. And so Democrats had something that they were reasonably committed to, that they were defending, that many of them liked. There's no bill. And so this is all coming in as an input before – I mean you, you mentioned that Paul Ryan has said and, and I think also Trump has said that they're going to have something in March sometime and we'll see if they do or they don't. But that's going to be their first draft that then mm-hmm. needs to like – all the committee needs to look at and all their members need to weigh in on. I mean that's going to be the beginning of their process. It's not the thing everybody's kind of converged around. Do you think it matters in this process that this kind of input is happening before that has come out? And so you're – plausibly getting these folks coming back to Paul Ryan to come back to Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. saying, hey, whatever you do, just you need to know it has to do this because like I am like all my people are saying you have to do this. Yeah, I think I think it could. I, I think well, I mean, we'll see the test for me is like so we have better way, which is kind of the Republican outline. We have the price bill. They're pretty similar. And like how how much it shifts from that, for example, like do the tax credits get more generous because people are really worried about being able to afford their insurance? Um, do they back off? Um, like, how do they protect pre-existing conditions, for example? Do they increase the funding for risk pools? Right now, I believe it's $25 billion over 10 years in the Ryan plan. Like, do they bump that up because they feel like they need to sell people something better? But I think, you know, if anything, it puts them in a harder bind. And I think, like, for example, the tax credits are a good example of this because you have on one side constituents 
like want more generous tax credits. They want to be able to afford their insurance. And then you have on the other side, the Freedom Caucus is saying no tax credits at all. Um, and it's weirdly like a replay of the 2009 debate that I'm sure you remember, <laughs> where like Senate Democrats wanted less generous tax credits. Now the debate is like stingy tax credits or no tax credits. And you have powerful forces mobilizing on each side. So I don't know which direction it gets dragged in, but it means they're getting a lot more input. And I think, you know, I think all of this, it could really matter. Um, There's a story I wrote last week about um, the end of lifetime limits in Obamacare. And one of the things I learned, and so this was traditionally a lot of insurance plans, about half of employer-sponsored plans before the ACA would cap benefits at one or two million dollars. And one of the things that really surprised me when I was reporting this story is the whole reason this even got on the table. Like, this wasn't like, um, you know, the individual mandate. It wasn't part of the three-legged stool. Like, you didn't need to ban um, lifetime limits. The only reason it happened was this one mom in North Dakota, like, bugged the hell out of her senator about it and brought her son to Washington and showed up at all his town halls and said, look at these medical bills. Look, this is a real problem. And um, Senator Byron Dorgan from North Dakota, like, finally decided, like, OK, I'll look into this. And, oh, this, like, seems kind of insane. Like, I should change this part of the healthcare system. And it really spoke to how much personal stories um, kind of matter to legislators, that they actually are nervous about getting hit on these sort of things and that hearing these, like, really individual stories can actually shape the type of legislation that they support. So I think, like, that hearing that story kind of, you know, convinced me a little bit more that the stuff that is happening now really could have a big effect. So I heard a story from Maine that I just think really like show is sort of what the activation looks like out there. This was not around a town hall. So th- this is from somebody in Maine. And so apparently a couple weeks ago or maybe a month ago, whatever it was, Susan Collins made a promise that she would keep her phone lines open. <laughs> And she said that, you know, listen, your feedback is really important to me. I know a lot of you feel very passionately about Trump. And so we're going to make sure that you you may not always be able to reach somebody, but the lines will always be open. You'll always be able to leave a message. We will always listen to the messages. We will hear you. That was a dumb promise (laughs) because they don't have that many phone lines. So immediately the phone lines get swamped. Uh, In the 48 hours between whenever the phone lines get swamped and whatever solution they come up with, there is a 1,500-person protest outside Susan Collins's office in Maine with signs like, tell Susan Collins to open the phone lines. The, you, the Obama administration could not get 15 people to protest at Susan Collins' office to pass Obamacare. I mean, it was they couldn't do anything. And you're getting 1,500 to argue that Susan Collins needs to reopen more answering machines so they can leave messages telling her they're pissed off. This is what – like the Republicans are terrified of these town halls. I mean they're seeing the, the videos going around of just like – I got a, an email the other day that people were very angry that – I think it's a Dave Bratt town hall or it was somebody – that it wasn't going to be a, in a big enough venue that he – they were angry. Whoever it was, maybe I'm, I'm worried it wasn't Bratt, but it was somebody. That, I know Bratt wasn't allowing like signs or like various paraphernalia in his and that was causing a lot of outrage. Um, but most of them I've seen like – um. Dave Weigel shared a photo from before um, Grassley's town hall, and it had, like, a ton of people were not. Like, these are, like, overflow crowds routinely at this point. Like, people can't fit. And it's, like, kind of, like, think back. Like, it's been seven years. Like, when was the administration ever able to, like, rally people, like, to, like, 
come out to like a support the ACA rally. And I think, you know, Andrew Pokrop had a nice piece for us earlier this week arguing that once you want to take something away, and this is something we've talked about before, and I think my views on it have shifted over the past month or two, that it, it turns out a lot of the theories we had about the welfare state might have more staying power than I would have thought, that it actually is quite hard to like take something away from somebody else. But I, I also I do want to say something about this, like the administration couldn't get people to whatever thing, because I think that the people who make the like really strong versions of the Obama failed by folding organizing oh, yeah, for I America. That's actually the not DNC. what I'm saying. Wait, wait, wait but, but I'm saying I think it's important to understand that Barack Obama deliberately demobilized grassroots progressives as part of settling down into his governing agenda. If Obama had wanted to get angry crowds of liberals to yell at Max Baucus about the public option, I think he could have done that. He didn't do that because he thought it would have been counterproductive to get angry crowds of left-wing people yelling at Max Baucus about the public option, that he thought that would have alienated moderate Senate Democrats, that it would have undermined that was a gang of six, gang of eight, whatever it was, process with, with Senate Republicans, that kind of thing. Because when you are trying to mobilize people, right, your go-to organizers and mobilizers are like the most keyed up type people, one reason that opposition is easier to do is like some of the people showing up to these town halls may be like the single payer people who spent the entire Affordable Care Act debate sending me annoying emails about that. You know, like who knows, right? But it's like opposition has like a nice easy message like hold the line and all Democrats like want liberal people to be showing up at Republican town halls giving them a hard time. And if you think about where the anti-ACA town halls, I think, most clearly made a difference, it wasn't even in frightening Democrats. It was in frightening Republicans, right? It was that the Democratic legislative strategy put a lot of stock in the idea of reaching a compromise in the Senate of kind of like having this like liberal House bill as like a hammer and then a bipartisan compromise in the Senate as like an anvil and then something – like popular and broadly supported would be wrought out of this. And by showing that there was a mobilized constituency of grassroots conservatives who were like mad as hell about this, they got Chuck Grassley and other Republicans who it did not seem in principle really like had a profound objection to this structure to pull the plug on the whole thing, which in the end, didn't stop the bill from passing, but it did uh, greatly complicate the, the politics around it. Republicans don't seem to be even attempting to get a bipartisan bill done. So in a way, you know, I, there must have been a time when Joe Donnelly was thinking after the election, like, you know, if there's an opportunity to be involved in a bipartisan process that I can say, oh, I'm working with Republicans to fix Obamacare, like I should probably get in on that process. Uh, but there was no process. So there's now nothing to I, scare him out of participating. I think in. they do. I mean, like at least the reporting I've done suggests that they do think they're going to have to work with Democrats at some point, um, that they can't accomplish everything they want through reconciliation. I agree. I do not see a process right. happening to get there. But I think you could see the same effect at these town halls where Democrats watch these 
And if they had even been thinking about working with Republicans, they're just like, why bother? Like, like why not just like let them deal with this? And right. Yeah. Well, well, so I think the the sort of. 2017 version of this is right. It seemed like there was this idea that okay, we can do a repeal through a reconciliation mm-hmm. bill, and then have this like replacement hot potato yeah. be something Democrats will have to work with us on, so we can now not worry about if the Freedom Caucus is going to like stick us to an untenable position, right? So the the, the Tea Party has just like it's called that whole juggling act, I think, into a lot of question. And it has clarified that I think in a realistic sense, Republicans would have to do what Democrats ended up Mm -hmm. doing, which is assembling a partisan majority to do something controversial because they've decided they think it's important. But but I think it's important to to go back to what Sarah just said. It isn't clear they can do the thing they want through a partisan majority. I mean, for a lot of that period you're talking about, Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate and so at least had a plausible way of doing that just on their own. And then Kennedy died and Brown won the election and that that called all that into question and they were able to finish the thing off in reconciliation. But Republicans have 52 Senate votes. They can do certain kinds of like repealing money Mm -hmm. but they can't rebuild a regulatory structure. Like they, they just can't. So they need eight Democrats from somewhere if they're actually passing a – like I don't think you could get the price bill through reconciliation. No. Like there's no, no way. you can't. I mean you have to – yeah, that that's not going to happen. And so I think there's a question of, you know, are they willing to get rid of the filibuster? And like that's one way. That's one way. That seems like the most plausible path at this point. It's not super that's interesting, yeah. plausible. Um, but I think you're really going to see like the same – I think Matt's right. Like what happened in 2009 wasn't about de- wasn't about Democrats. It was all about Republicans saying, like, I don't want to touch that. And I think they haven't even started, like Matt was saying, they haven't even started the process of really working with Democrats. And like when you went into 2009, um, the protests then, they really were working together. Like before the protests, yeah. Grassley was talking about how he liked the individual mandate and there were gangs of like various numbers and (laughs) you didn't even get that far this time. And like if I'm like Joe Donnelly like watching this, like why would I possibly bring this like on on myself? Like why not just sit all this out? This speaks to to me to something I am fascinated by. And and we were talking about this before the show, Sarah, and and you made the good point that I might say this and it might change in like three weeks. So – I'm just speaking about reality as it exists right now. It it could change fast. Fake news. Fake news. Um, Fake fake reality. But compared to my expectations of what would be happening right now, there is a lot less policy happening. There's a lot less policy happening in the administration. There's a lot less policy happening on the Hill. There's just less. Now, we we keep hearing um, that – now they're going to bring out their tax bill in March and they're going to bring out a health care bill in March and maybe they will and maybe they won't and we'll see. But even that, that is really not as impressive as I think it might sound. That is not a committee process where hundreds of amendments need to get done. Bring out a bill that nobody has seen is the absolute first thing you have to do, right? I mean you have to somehow – like that happened for Obamacare before Barack Obama came into office, right? Max Baucus released this thing called the, the, the Senate White Paper that was the framework for Obamacare. Like it was getting worked through the Senate Finance Committee beginning in – I believe that was early 2008 if I'm not wrong. might have been Maybe. 2007. Yeah. Um, and like that, that, 
that was happening for a long time. So here, plausibly, maybe Ryan brings out better way. Maybe Trump releases some kind of, you know, principles document. But they have to get everybody on board there. And they just they have no process right now. I mean, I think the theory is they'll then send things to different committees. That's when people begin saying, hey, no, the Freedom Caucus says this doesn't get rid of Medicaid or the Senate moderates say this gets rid of Medicaid. There's no way we can do that. I got all these people in my state on Medicaid. And the same is true on tax reform. We're just, there's just less happening than I would have thought. I mean, I thought we'd be having reporters on the Hill right now every day covering these hearings on their tax reform bills or like how to create their tax reform bill or something. And I, yeah, I think the longer you wait, the harder it gets. Like, right. So for like, I think of this week as particularly important because you have the town halls. You also have the National Governors Association meeting this weekend, and they're going to be having a big meeting on Medicaid. I'm certain like governors will be going to meet with their delegations and like getting more involved in the Medicaid side of things, that you have more conflicting opinions, like, developing as you wait longer. And not only that, but other things come on the schedule. Mm -hmm. So in April, they have to do – they have to fund the government. Like, they have to do budgets, appropriations, all of that. The debt ceiling begins to run out. Now, they're going to have a fair amount of time from the statutory, like, the debt ceiling only went until mm-hmm. now because of how receipts work and there's all sorts of complicated things. We'll probably have until September before things get really bad there. But it's going to take a lot of congressional energy. There are going to be other fights. Do you defund Planned Parenthood in the budget? Do you defund PBS? Like there's only so much Congress can do and the answer is not that much usually. Like they're just – I think this is more problematic than than other people realize and also like what is the House Freedom Caucus going to demand in return for increasing the debt ceiling? Because they're not going to get Democratic votes on this, not under any of the plausible things they want to do. Trump wants to increase defense spending. Is he going to pay for that by cutting de- – like this is coming really fast and that's just keeping the government open, right? That's just not having a shutdown. That's not even doing the hard new things you want to do. So the fact that less is happening now – it, it doesn't feel to me that it it's value neutral. Like it's and then they go home. They're having these tunnels. People come back. They're more afraid. It it seems weird to me. Like something seems like it's really off the tracks. Well, I, I guess you know what one question about this is like were unrealistic expectations raised by policy focused journalists who cut our teeth in the early Obama years, right and is to an extent what we're seeing here something of like a return to normalcy um, because it, it does look to me that if you look at the kind of track record of most presidents, it's fairly typical to not do that much. Um, yeah. Who, who is president is, of course, always an important topic. You know, like when Bill Clinton was president as opposed to George H.W. Bush, a number of things happened that changed that were important to the lives of the American people. In particular, environmental regulations got stricter at the margin. You know, taxes on the rich went up more than they would have. But we don't look back on Bill Clinton's presidency as like an epical once in a generation kind of policymaking change, even though he had, you know, unified democratic control of government for two years. It was the same uh, with Jimmy Carter. Um, And, you know, Carter is remembered as like a failure in a way that Bill Clinton wasn't because macroeconomic conditions went bad for him. Uh, But there's actually not it's rare to have the kind of big bursts of policymaking that you had in 2009 or you had in 1981 or you had in, in 1964, 65. And, you know, I think that that we are seeing that, you know, 
it's hard to do that stuff. And if we had assessed in maybe a more sober-minded way, um, is Donald Trump likely to perform above average at like getting the ducks together on complicated, contentious policy matters? Like, no, of of course not, right? Like he has no relevant experience doing this. He doesn't seem to have a great deal of interest in the details of, of these kinds of things. Um, and it's looking to me more like, you know, like like we should have seen this coming a, a little bit more, you know, a presidency that is more focused on, frankly, the things that were the central themes of his campaign, you know, like trumpeting the virtues of law enforcement officials and how political correctness is bad rather than a comprehensive rewrite of the corporate income yeah, tax although I, will, I will just say one quick thing on this, which is you're making me go back to look at Clinton to see what was happening at that point. And I will just say it was January when Clinton, January 93, five days after he came in, when Clinton um, created the Task Force on National Health Care Reform, appointed Hillary Clinton to be in charge of it. And obviously none of that happened. But I do, I do just think one thing that's interesting is that there were gears in motion earlier. He had already given his big speech laying out his economic plan at this point in his presidency. Now, a lot of that stuff didn't pass. So like we look back in it. But that shows how hard it is to do even when you do get an early Although start. Although I will say like one – I think one structural thing that's different um, from the like Clinton-Obama and Trump is there's just a lot more interest in health policy in the Democratic Party than there is in the Republican yep. Party. I've been asking a lot of um, kind of conservative health policy experts like who are the legislators like leading this? And it's really a small group of people which like maybe actually ends up like – like and it's Ryan and it's Price. Like they are really like the healthcare thinkers of um, – the House. And in a weird way, maybe that ends up being like a little bit easier. I do think you have like an ideological wing in the Freedom Caucus that has some strong views on how this all should work. But I've been rereading um, this wonderful book by John McDonough, who worked in the Senate during the Affordable Care Act and now teaches at Harvard. Um, it's called Inside National Health Reform. And it is hands down my favorite book on the Affordable Care Act. And it um, it kind of tells the history of the passage. And one of the things you remember is like, how many people had such strong opinion, like how many Democrats like really like wanted to be like the person on this, like wanted to be the person championing this. Like you had Dingle and Waxman and Pelosi and Baucus and like Wyden and like so many people who really cared about like putting their mark on this. I, I don't see that energy on the Republican side. Like maybe it emerges at some point, but you know, maybe it's also possible possible that ends up as like a net positive because you have a lot fewer competing um theories of what this should look like and like less strongly held opinions and more people kind of willing to say like, I like Paul Ryan's version of this and like, I'm happy to go with but that. But I, I think that cuts the other way to some extent. Like I think you had a lot of House Democrats in particular who knew they were holding somewhat unsustainable seats that have been won in, in 06 and 08. And because healthcare is such a big deal to Democrats, they like wanted to get this done while they could, you know, and if they had to walk the plank for it or they thought they were going to lose anyway or something, they wanted to be able to say, I was in the Congress that passed a universal health care plan for America, right? And I don't think there are that many Republicans who feel that strongly about this issue, right? That there are other things Republicans would like go down with the ship for, right? But like, Taking away people's Medicaid coverage strikes me as much more something the typical Republican 
would go along with if he thought all things considered that was the smart move for him. But if he's hearing from the governor of his state and the people at his town halls and maybe a pollster he has that like – and some hospital lobbyists and they're all like, hey, man, like don't do this. It's like, OK, maybe I won't do it, right? It's not as much of a – uh, passion point. Um, whereas Republicans are, are pretty clearly um, eager to like go down swinging on topics related to abortion and are very passionate about tax policy issues. And I think that I think that one thing that we're seeing right here is that Paul Ryan was very invested in Affordable Care Act repeal. And so he rigged together a sort of a legislative scheme in which you have this this ACA truck going ahead of the like tax cuts bus, which I think is not how most Republicans. Although they did that for a specific reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because no. it makes it easier. Right, right, right. I mean, they they it makes it easier to lock in permanent tax yeah. cuts, but it makes it harder to like pass a tax cuts bill. It also makes it harder to repeal Obamacare. Right. It, it, it's made a lot of things very difficult, and I think it doesn't reflect like. Every single person in the Republican Party's sense of the priorities, it reflects the legislative leader of the party's sense of the priorities, and they may have some some tensions there. Uh, Barack Obama, it seemed to me during the 2008 presidential campaign, thought, I think correctly, that climate change was a much more pressing problem for the United States than the ramshackle nature of the healthcare system. And he gave some indication that like his personal preference would be to put climate change action ahead of healthcare action. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said, said much the same thing. Ultimately, both of them decided not to do that because it wasn't like where the party membership was and they weren't going to try to like swim up river on that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, it was probably wise, right? Because it just turns out that you can't make other people care about what you care about. You have to do – if you want to get anything done, you have to focus on the places where the possibility of action is really promising. And this is a little bit – particularly with this like scrap Medicaid expansion – it feels like trying to force something that like not that many Republicans are that fired up about. Speaking of things people are fired up about. Cell phone bills. I have a really high cell phone bill, so I'm excited for this paper. We all do because we're apparently all getting screwed. That's how I feel. Um, OK. So this is a paper that is by uh, uh, Mara Faccio and Luigi Zingales. Zingales. I don't know how to say his last name. I've always said it's Zingales. Zingales. I, have no reason I don't to know. Think that's correct. He's, he's Italian. Um, that sounds he, Italian. He does a lot of good papers, um, and this one is <laughs> this one is particularly great. That's what we know about Luigi. Yeah, <laughs> Italian got, great papers. He's got good papers. He's got a good I, book. Um, I have not read the book. Also I, has. I'm sorry. <laughs> one other good Luigi Zingales Zingales fact extremely prescient about Donald Trump. Huh. Like years ago, apparently in his book years ago. Wanted to have a chapter about like what if Donald Trump ran and became like the um, American Berlusconi and his book editors like that's absurd. We would never take How a do Donald you know Trump. This fact? He's talked about this and he wrote about it publicly in City Journal. Yeah, uh, huh. like in two thousand and 
12. 12, yeah. It's like it's a good thing for Republicans that Donald Trump didn't run for president <laughs> because if he had run for president, he probably would have won and he probably would have thrown free market ideology over the bus to govern as a corrupt populist. And but it's all it's all coming. But what to about pass. the cell phone bells? Um, so the cell phone bells. So, <laughs> good. so, so good keeping us on track there. Right. So, so Zingle is Italian center right guy. He's really into free markets. And because he's Italian and obsessed with Silvio Berlusconi and Donald Trump, he is also obsessed with like corruption and like pro-business policies that undermine free markets. Um, So what he looks at here is regulation of the mobile phone industry, uh, which he points out is an interesting thing to study because each country has its own telecom regulator. So even like Liechtenstein has an independent telecom regulator. But the basic cell phone technology, right, you have your Androids, you have your iPhones, is the exact same everywhere. So you can really compare what are people paying for service and what are they getting and and how do the prices vary. Um, And it varies enormously from, from country to country. And he goes through it and he shows that it varies enormously, uh, largely according to how regulated the industry is and that in countries that have more sort of business-friendly regulation – because there's there's an index from the International Telecom Union. Um, so countries that have more business-friendly regulation have higher prices. Uh, countries that have more consumer-friendly regulation have lower prices. He shows that democracies – have lower prices because the governments have to care what their citizens think, that authoritarian countries are more likely to have business-friendly regulation and high prices. And like what does business-friendly regulation look like in in this space? Well, so like like one example that's like well-coded in the thing is phone number portability, right? So it used to be in the United States that if you wanted to switch from AT&T to Verizon, you would have to give up your phone number. So that was like an anti-competitive measure. The FCC came in and said, no, you have to allow that. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things on the index. Uh, there's another thing about uh, voice over IP, which is like, can you make phone calls using data or are you locked into the into the voice? Um, then he shows within the developed world, right, the U.S. and Europe are like broadly in the same like regulatory category. Uh, but you can compare the United States to Germany and Denmark and we are still paying substantially more than, than Germans or Danes, I think, to the uh, – tune of, of $65 billion a year collectively. That's actually more, a lot. More than Denmark. And this is pretty clearly this is attributable to the differential antitrust enforcement in the United States, which got fairly strict uh, under Obama. But in the uh, aughts, a lot of big mergers were allowed that created a sort of two major carriers, AT&T and Verizon, and then two like mid-major ones, uh, whereas in Denmark they have four about equally sized uh, types of carriers here. So for one thing, I mean, it's an interesting issue. I mean, this amounts to about $200 per person per year, uh, which is not nothing. Um, And it's just a good conceptual demonstration. So like one thing he does here, one thing that that makes his papers good is that because he's kind of situated on the political right, he's attuned to like really what it is conservative people say about this stuff. And so there's like a whole long section in here about does these less competitive policies drive more investment? Right, which is what industry will say that no, you know, we'll make more money and then we'll invest it, we'll build you a better quality network. And he he shows, you know, it is true we have a slightly higher quality network uh, available in the United States than in, than in Europe, but not commensurate to the amount of, of higher prices that were being paid. That mostly what happens is that the uh, stock price of 
uh, mobile phone companies is higher as uh, they pay more dividends. So, you know, we're being screwed. People in uh, many developing countries are being screwed even worse. Uh, Denmark, they got good stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that seems true in a lot of ways, frankly. <laughs> Yeah, in a weird way. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it almost like reminds me a lot of what I write about drug pricing, where you have like same product, like same sort of thing we're all buying, and yet we still keep paying more because of very specific policy decisions that we've made. I think there, you know, I do take a little more seriously some of the arguments about innovation and people investing, like if there is not in the sense like we're going to get these profits and like plow them back into research, but more that you're going to have just more people who want to invest in drugs if the financial rewards are higher. And like, but I guess I guess I don't see that working on the cell phone. Like, it's not like you see a lot of companies like wanting to invest in like cellular technology or like, oh, the reason I'm going to like build a new iPhone or like build a great cell phone is because I think there's like huge financial rewards there. I, the the argument seems like even weaker on the cell phone side than it might for like other technologies that you're going to see like some some massive amount of investment in, because you're offering like this higher financial reward. Well, but also what I think is kind of interesting is that, I mean, everything is on the margin, right? There's no version of the regulations we'd be talking about here where you wouldn't get a lot of money if you invest, invented the next iPhone. And like the iPhone guys don't even care that much about right. the cell phone regulations because like they're separate from that. Right. right? Apple yeah. doesn't care about phone right. reportability. They actually want that. They want voice over right. IP the, the question is like the development of when they move yeah. from 3G to LTE. Yep, totally. Right. But but the, the one thing I will note in this is that I think you you had a you you mentioned populism here. And yeah. I, I do just want to say I think it is one of the great ironies of this age that Donald Trump's Victory is seen as a victory of a certain kind of economic populism. And yet nobody thinks that what is going to come out of this is more consumer-friendly cell phone regulations. I don't think anybody believes like that is going to be the the, the end result here. Yes. And I have thought a lot about in the election to connect this maybe back to our first conversation a bit, the ways in which populism is an identity and not a policy package. Like Donald Trump was good at activating a certain kind of populist, anti-elite, fuck the technocrats, like screw the establishment identity. And it isn't even clear to me that people whose identity was activated there care that much that he's not doing that. I mean he brought in a bunch of Goldman Sachs bankers. He got the CEO of Exxon into his administration. He's Nobody believes that we're going to get better cell phone regulations. And maybe people do believe all this will come and they will end up being disappointed. But I, I, I think they aren't going to be. I think that there's a lot more of this is just about identity than people give it credit for and that the end of the action was bringing in the guy who all those other people hated. And like that was the victory. Well, but OK. So I think that, that you see – I'm stealing this point from somebody else whose name I don't remember, which is unfortunate. <laughs> um, but there is an anti government populism and there's an anti-business populism and then there is like Davos, right? Sure. And and so I think that Trump elaborated on a like Tea Party version of anti-government populism, right? It's like the system is rotten and we need to throw these politicians out and we need to bring in a bunch of people who aren't politicians. And in Trump's case, that means a lot of businessmen and a lot of uh, generals. And I think that you are not going to see better cell phone 
regulation from from this stew. The other approach to populism that I think was offered to us by by Bernie Sanders is that leaders of American business are bad. And this was like a really clear differentiator in in his rhetoric. And you continue to see it. Like he uses the term greed, right? Yeah. And he thinks that greed is bad, right? So he thinks that if you say, well, the reason that I'm doing this is to increase the profits of my company, which increases my salary and also increases the uh, revenue to my large shareholders, that that is a bad thing to do, that that is greedy and that greed is wrong and that you need to have a government that like takes a very suspicious view of greedy businessmen. And then you have Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, but really especially Hillary Clinton, who like were not there, right? They believed in regulating business. They particularly believed in taxing business people, but they were also very comfortable in the company businessmen. You would not think that they would say, hey, man, that's greedy and wrong, right, to like a rich executive. They would say, oh, yeah, we need to collaborate on finding new solutions to things. And, you know, this article, I should say, is actually quite favorable to the Obama uh, FCC and and the U.S. mistakes were largely happened when, when George W. Bush was president. Um, but the basic moral of it is that it is helpful to have regulators who are skeptical of the motives and arguments offered by industry, right? That like this thing that like, well, we need higher revenue per user so that we can do more investment. Like that sounds reasonable. That could be true. If somebody said it to me, I wouldn't be like, aha, you're obviously lying. Uh, Because clearly on some margin, like it is true. But what he's showing is that on the relevant margin of the actual countries that we have, like it's not true. And governments are giving in to what businesses want uh, because they are like not making policy in the public interest. And that's like a, a stronger line rhetorically than I think we heard from Bill Clinton onward, like most Democrats, about most kinds of industries. Every once in a while, you know, they would turn it on. People forget now, but one of the like forgotten legislative accomplishments of Barack Obama was he gave the uh, FDA authority to regulate tobacco use, uh, which was like a this was like an endless political argument in the in the Clinton and, and Bush years. And, you know, Democrats like really got into it on that one with the idea that like tobacco companies are bad. These are bad companies that make money by selling people addictive cancer drugs. Um, And they like threw their backs into it. And smoking has like gone down a lot in the United States as a result of like a relentless campaign against tobacco company interests. Um, But that's not like their view of most companies. and, And I think certainly not of like telecom infrastructure providers. You know what I'm greedy for? Uh, ratings on iTunes, subscriptions to the weeds, <laughs> and sharing the weeds with your friends. We might even improve the weeds if we get more feedback. Yeah, more investment. More investment. I'm also better weeds. You also, need to buy products sold by our sponsors, I think, to yeah. get the whole virtuous cycle. That's of investment true. Going. And you can check out uh, the Ezra Klein Show this week. I have Elizabeth Drew on, who covered Watergate, and we talk about what parallels there are and aren't between the Watergate years and the Trump years. And it was a fun conversation. I think weeds listeners will enjoy. Um, as always, thank you to my colleagues, Sarah Cliff and Matt Iglesias. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week. 